Hello and welcome to Crossing Channels, a podcast collaboration between Cambridge University's Bennett Institute for Public Policy and the Institute for Advanced Study in Toulouse. I'm Rory Catlin-Jones and we're back for a second series where we showcase the amazing interdisciplinary strengths of both Cambridge and Toulouse as we explore some of the many complex challenges facing our societies. Today's episode asks the question, has digital technology made us better off? We're going to look at the impact of digitalization on productivity, the problem of regulating big tech monopolies, and explore the mystery of why the era of smartphones and social media has also been an age of sluggish economic growth. To explore these issues today, we have Diane Coyle from the Bennett Institute. Diane, remind us of your main research interests. Oh, I've been uh, thinking about the digital economy for a quarter of a century now, which makes me an antique. And I'm particularly interested in measurement and productivity questions. That's a lot of thinking. Uh, and joining us from the IAST uh, and the Toulouse School of Economics, we have Jacques Crémer and Jean Tirol. Jacques, what does your research focus on? Well, I'm basically an economic uh, theorist, but I've been uh, dabbling in uh, economic policy uh, recently, and in particular, economic policy of the regulation of uh, big tech uh, monopolies. I think dabbling is an interesting phrase. I would imagine it's quite serious dabbling. And uh, Jean, Jean Tirole, what are your main research interests? Well, currently I work on what's called divisive issues, which are issues for which we don't agree about what's right and what's wrong, like religion or politics or societal issues, and see how this can divide society and create safe spaces and echo chambers. Well, let's see if we have a divisive uh, conversation <laughs> now about uh, digitalization. And let's start with some data. The last 20 years have seen digital technology transform our lives with a very powerful computer in every pocket in the form of a smartphone. And just about every service from banking to shopping to dating has moved online. So, Diane, start us all off. Has all this digital technology made us more productive? As you say, Rory, uh, and you should know because you spend all your time on Twitter, uh, it has transformed the way that we lead our lives. And according to the latest figures for the UK, we're spending 28 hours a week online doing various things. That's more than the whole day a week. Yet, if you talk to an economist about are we better off and you think about productivity for at least 10 years, maybe 15 years, there's been no improvement in the measured productivity for the UK economy and very little for the French economy or other advanced countries. It's called the productivity puzzle. We see people, we see businesses using this technology, we see new business models. Why isn't it making us better off according to the figures? And in, perhaps in some ways according to how we feel as well. So one of the things that I've been looking at with colleagues here is the way that some companies are much better than others at using digital technology, it's relatively few of them, they're relatively big, they, they get called superstar companies, and they're getting more and more profit and productivity, they're pulling further and further ahead of all the rest. And the people who work for them are doing better. The spread of wages being paid in different parts of the economy, that's expanding, and it's the people working for the big companies that seem to know how to use this technology that are getting much better off. You know, if you're an economist like me, this is a playground for trying to understand how organisations and, and people are using the technologies and why, although we're spending so much time doing it, it doesn't seem to be having any direct payoff in terms of our living standards. 
Jean Giraud, what's your theory here on why this extraordinary revolution that we all see transforming our lives in so many ways is not transforming productivity, is not translating through into economic growth? Well, I think there's a big uh, lag and mismatch on that issue, which is uh, it takes time actually to find the right uses of the technology and also to learn how to use it. There's also a mismeasurement, so all kinds of household productions actually is not accounted for in GDP and in growth. So, for example, all the time we spend at home, so for example, teaching our children is something that we didn't do in the past because we had lots of duties like washing, uh, we, we didn't have washing machines and the like, and, uh, and same thing with digital. Nowadays, we book our tickets online we don't need an agency, a travel agency to do that. So in the end, there is a lot of things that we do at home which are not accounted for in GDP. That's very important. Economists have looked at uh, the mismeasurement issue and have found that it's, you know, it might be 0.5 or 0.7 per year under estimation of the growth rate because of that. Jacques, is that how you see this issue, that either it's too early to tell or that we're just not measuring it properly, this digital revolution? I think there are really two different issues which I think we need to distinguish. One is the productivity of the firms which are doing the same thing than they were doing before. So as your baker become more productive because of a digital technology. The other issue is the issue of a type of services which are uh, receiving, and are we evaluating the value of those services, of those consumer services, properly? Okay, so I was telling uh, Jean earlier that uh, it was my seventeenth, uh, my granddaughter's seventeenth birthday a few days ago. She lives in Hong Kong. My uh, daughter sent a WhatsApp message to our family group saying, who wants to look at the blowing off of the candles of her 17th birthday? Within three minutes, I was connected. My wife, which was at home, was connected. And my son, who was in Corsica, was connected. And we looked at the blowing of a candle. I would have happily paid uh, 50 euros for this. Okay, This is absolutely not measured. I just should add one thing. Jean, when I told him this story, immediately said, haha, you are not working. But uh, that's another <laughs> issue. <Okay. laughs> so, and the amount of time my uh, grandchildren spend playing games basically for free, we don't measure. So I think all the consumption part, I mean, that's the 0.6, Jean was uh, mentioning, but it's actually very, very hard to measure. On the productivity within firms, I think here there's a bigger puzzle and I don't quite understand it. Dan, you wanted to come in. Uh, well, did you want to mention our FaceTime calls with our granddaughter? We have lots of FaceTime calls with our granddaughter. But both, both Jean and Jacques have raised really interesting points about measurement and economic statistics make my heart beat faster. It's a very interesting <laughs> area. So on the one hand, there are these big shifts across what we call the production boundary and things that are inside get measured in GDP and things that are outside don't. So when the washing machines that Jean mentioned were brought into houses in the 1950s and 60s, women who had done unpaid household work bought the machines, went out to get paid work and bought all kinds of other things as well because they were in paid work. That increased the GDP and productivity measurement then. And now that's gone into reverse somewhat because people are doing banking and travel agency for themselves online or they're creating free software and making it available. So economists now use free stuff like Python or R rather than the proprietary software. 
And then at the same time, all the consumer things, all of these services that we use almost all the time that we don't pay for, how is that being accounted for in, in the data? And the answer is it isn't really. And we don't know how it should affect um, the calculation of price indices. And then there's a sort of unmeasurable aspect to this, the joy that you can get from talking to your granddaughter in Hong Kong. Of course, you'd pay for it. But there's a part of that that is, you know, you, you wouldn't want to think about it in monetary terms. It's just a sheer gain to human existence. What about these tech monopolies, though? Does the fact that a few giant businesses dominate uh, the technology scene mean innovation and therefore productivity growth has slowed? Diane? In a nutshell, um, possibly. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there have been studies about the tech, the tech markets and the power of the big tech companies in all the major jurisdictions now. Jack was involved in a, a big study. I was involved in one here in the UK. The Americans and the, and the Chinese have also been looking at this. And so there's a real sense about these very big companies having excessive power over our lives and the consequences of that in all kinds of ways. Are they buying up startups that might prove effective competitors to them in future? And have the competition authorities been too lax in allowing takeovers like that to take place? Things like Facebook purchasing Instagram or WhatsApp? Are they preventing innovation happening in other other areas, suppliers to them because they're taking out all the revenues? So for example, from newspapers, has, has all the advertising revenue been sucked out by the tech companies? And so that innovation and provision of supply upstream is not happening. And so I think there's a, a sense pretty much everywhere, yes, that they're too powerful, but less agreement about exactly what should be done about it. And here in the UK, the panel that I was on chaired by Jason Furman put forward a set of proposals which required some legislation that hasn't yet happened. So Jacques can speak to the European legislation as well. So we're in the process of regulating this market power. I think it's not at all clear yet if it's going to be effective, if it's going to have any impact at all on the dominance of these big tech firms. I don't know whether Jacques, Jacques would agree. Well, before we drill down into the regulation, let's question whether, whether the, the evidence that it is a problem, economically at least. Jacques, what does your research show? So I was just going to say that this is not the interesting question because we are not going to get rid of a very big firms. Okay, I mean, the technology is such and they're... And I really think that the main issue right now is a policy issue because it doesn't make... I, I don't know how I make a, a thought experiment in which I don't have very big tech firms. We are not going to get rid of Google tomorrow. We are not going to get rid of Facebook or of Microsoft tomorrow. Okay. So one thing is that they're incredibly innovative firms. Okay. But my feeling is that they're so innovative that we really risk very, very little in that they're going to lose, not to become innovative because we put more regulation. So I think the regulatory problem which we have is to make sure that we clean up, in some sense, the business models of those firms by putting regulations which make sure that, you know, as uh, Diane was uh, mentioning, they don't buy uh, competitors, they leave entry open for competitors who are pro uh, producing uh, complementary goods to their main products and so on. But I really think the issue is what are the regulations which, which we can put, which are going to help uh, competitors, uh, help complementers. I think the issue of you know, what would happen if we didn't have big firms is something which nobody can answer. And uh, they would always claim that 
the, the last 30, 40 years has shown that, you know, giants can, can stumble, that new, new companies can come in. If you look at Nokia, which completely dominated the mobile phone industry in around 2007 and has effectively disappeared from it, that does appear to be the case. Is, is that true, Jean? Is there still risk for the giants? Well, there's um, what the DMA, the Digital Market Act in Europe, calls a contestability issue, whether new giants can come in and replace the incumbents. And the DMA is all about, actually, Alpha Fit at least, is about making sure that entry conditions will be facilitated. That's very important. The question is, you know, you have a two-sided market. You know, you, you need to have the, the customers on, on board and you need to have the apps on board. It must be the case that a new entrant can actually enter, which means there will be no application bias to entry. So this entrant will have enough apps to offer to the consumers. It must be the case that the consumers can switch so one of the important things for switching is to reduce switching costs and to encourage what we call multi-homing. Multi-homing means that you connect to multiple platforms. So imagine, for example, that uh, someone enters again Facebook. Maybe that will have been the case of Instagram and WhatsApp, but you know, basically some other platforms enters to compete with Facebook. Then you and I will want to actually try the new platform. So we would like to multi-home on Facebook and on the new platform just because we are not sure we're going to like the new platform. We are not sure that everybody is going to switch to the new platform. So multi-homing is very important, but that raises a number of issues. What do you do with the content? Do you have to post it twice? What about your contacts, etc.? There are a bunch of issues which have to do with the facilitation of entry. And then, as Diane said, you also need to enter. So it's not because you're able to enter that you will enter. That was the case of WhatsApp and Instagram. They were able to enter, but they didn't enter because they sold out to Facebook. And the new legislations are changing the game now. So DMA, for example, in Europe is forcing the bigger companies to notify their acquisitions. And hopefully they will change the burden of proof so that, you know, if you are a social network, for example, and you are acquiring something that looks like a social network, you have to explain why this social, new social network will not be purchased by Microsoft or, or do an IPO instead. So those are the kind of things that we have to be worried about and, and make sure that uh, you keep competition between platforms. Dan, do you see regulation working in, in Europe in particular? Is, it, is, is Europe's DMA going to work? Is whatever's going to happen in... You're laughing. I could see a, both you and Jack are laughing at the idea that this might work. Yeah, it's a sadistic question. <laughs> well, so I think I think the package of things that the kind of things that ought to be done in terms of regulation are, are pretty obvious now with all of the studies. Stop the acquisitions occurring, which is a little bit more complicated than it sounds because a lot of startups now count on being bought out by big companies. So they need an alternative route. But stop that. Ensure that there's enough interoperability so that people can switch easily and, and transfer content. And then something around data, making data open or enough data open that new entries facilitated, a bit like the open banking structures in the United Kingdom. And, and you know, regulate some of the behaviours as well, some of what are called dark patterns in the business of manipulating consumers or using pricing algorithms to put prices up online. But there's a clear set of things to be done. But this is still 
unfolding. And I think it's not at all clear how well it's going to turn out. And it's complicated stuff. So there'll be unintended consequences as well. And what we hope is that the regulators are going to be nimble enough and not get themselves stuck in particular decisions. Uh, You know, they're going to need to respond to how, how the market shifts. And even if it works, it it looks as if what it would produce is new entrants again from the United States. Obviously, there's a lot of concern in Europe that all the tech giants basically are based on the west coast of the United States or or in China. Should that be part of competition policy? Or do we just have to accept that that's the way the world is? I think it's a different ballgame in a sense. There are good reasons why we don't have the tech uh, giants in Europe. Uh, Actually, you're right. Out of the top 20 uh, tech companies, 11 are in the US and 9 are in China. (laughs) There are issues with that. First, we will need to have a better financial system, VC system for for startups. We need to have more connections between universities and, and industry. We need better universities, blah, blah, blah. I mean, we can go on and on. The question is whether we should also be using industrial policy and My own view on that is that industrial policy is great if you do it properly, but it's almost never done properly except except a little bit like in in the U.S. in South Korea. But in Europe, we have a tendency to actually... Uh, distribute money to to France as opposed to having really a public VC kind of mentality where we actually manage uh, innovation in the right way. The idea is that, for example, the French or the Europeans are going to find the new Google, I think is absurd. Uh, actually, they already tried. The French already tried 15 years ago and, and they miserably failed, as was predictable, actually. So my own view is that we can go for some industrial policy, but we have to do it right. And I don't see really a political emphasis on doing it right. But if we do it right, that, that could be fine. So can I be a little bit more forceful than Jean? I mean, that's a real problem, is that European politicians like to think about how unfair you know, the big tech companies are, but they don't like to speak about what is their responsibility, which is the innovativeness of uh, European industry. And uh, I kind of regret that I began working on innov- on um, regulation because I think it's the innovation problem is a much, 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 much more important problem in Europe, and we should be focusing on it much more. And Jean gave, uh, you know, lots of data, but just think about one thing. You know, there's a very important company in the kind of cloud world, which is Snowflake. Snowflake was created by Europeans. Those Europeans created an American company. Why? No, we've got to ask ourselves some questions and we've got to be angry about the fact that our societies are laggards in terms of uh, innovation. Stripe would be another example. I think it's a, it's a really good point. But the other question is, does it matter if Google is American or not? And being more precise about why you think that might matter would be important. You know, if they want to serve the UK market or the French market, they're going to have to abide by the regulations and conditions that we set here. And so maybe we should be focusing more on the things that we think are very harmful. You know, is it that conspiracy theories are being fermented elsewhere and imported. And if so, then that's the thing that we should be thinking about regulating. Jean, you had a recent paper, Digital Dystopia, where you wrote about the risks of increasing mass surveillance in modern societies and its destruction of social fabric. Is there a negative economic impact of that? Is that an economic question rather than just a social question? 
Well, in a sense, it's not uh, it's not a new question. I mean, we have seen uh, dystopia in many in many countries before, including say guilt by association. If you thought, if you think about what the Stasi was doing and punishing you because you were a friend of mine or you were seen a cafe with me. That was done already 50 or, or 70 years ago. The big difference nowadays is that um, the digital technologies have brought down the marginal cost of monitoring you, of storing the data, and of analyzing through AI those data. And that has made a, mar- a zero marginal cost basically technology for controlling society. It's not only the government, of course, it's also private companies can do that to some extent. But we think mainly about the government and can use that both, you know, just in a standard way, you know, boot in the face kind of uh, of way of basically putting you to jail or, or killing you in extreme cases. But, you know, in a softer way, like the social credit system in China where everybody gets a grade, including first, but also individuals, every individual gets a grade and it's a public thing. And that can be used both to refuse uh, discounts in stores, but also to ostracize people. So if you are a 630 and I'm a 505, you won't want to be seen with me, you know, with face recognition. It's very easy to know who you are meeting. Therefore, you know, people who have low grades will be ostracized. Now, the big issue, the biggest issues, of course, those grades include a lot of uh, things that we don't want them to include. So like religion, political opinion and activism and so on, uh, you know, societal attitudes. Um, and it's not only that you are, you are assessed according to your, you know, how, how you drive or whether you respect the environment, but also whether you please the government in many ways. So that's a dangerous situation. And in countries which don't have a state of law, you know, independent uh, Supreme Courts and the like, this is very dangerous. Actually, it's very dangerous also for our societies because when you see what's happening in the U.S., it's it's kind of scary in terms of the state of law. It's kind of being reduced every time, which was kind of the model for, for many people of how a democracy should function. It's going to go down the drain, and there's some kind of fracturing to be feared, which is that once a regime, an illiberal regime is in place, if it controls the courts as well, it's it's very hard to, to turn back. I mean, could you organize Tiananmen nowadays? It will be very hard, you know, with AI and, and monitoring of every conversation and, and facial recognition, could you organize Tiananmen Square? I doubt it somehow. Jacques Crémer, I mean, that is an argument, isn't it, against allowing too much power to, say, American or, or obviously Chinese companies? Because the kind of power that a Facebook or a Google has is so much greater than some of the monopolies of the past in terms of its impact on our daily lives. Well, I'm not sure that for a European viewpoint, this is actually the case. Because first, I trust European firms to be able to do things which are exactly the same. Than, uh, if you think that you know, Google is doing things which are uh, bad in terms of how it's presenting its search, I think a French search engine or a British search engine uh, would do exactly the, the same thing. Secondly, you've got to remember that domestic firms have got more political power than foreign firms. So in some sense, if you have the fears that Jean has, for instance, that uh, and you think that 
those uh, social surveillance is become, going to become privatized, it might be easier to uh, fight against a foreign firm than a domestic firm, which can participate in the political process in a more efficient way. So I'm not sure that on this issue, I would think that the foreign ownership of big tech companies is really a problem. But I see that Diane probably disagrees. Yeah, uh, no, I, I don't think I ever disagree with you, Jacques. I was just, I was thinking about Jean's paper, and the key for me is in something you just said, Jean, about there being information in the social credit that you don't want to be there. And I think the challenge is stopping the joining up of information about people, whether it's big companies, wherever they are, or whether it's governments. We don't want anybody to have that kind of panoptic view of your life. Because my bank manager knows all kinds of sensitive stuff about me, and that's fine. I just don't want you know, the tax man or the government to know that kind of stuff about me. So the authority over what gets joined up to create a picture of a person's life, that should lie with the individual. And yet we've ended up with these systems where powerful companies or governments can do that joining up. And, you know, the governments find it really tempting, even democratic governments, the security services are desperate to get access to all of our data. Let's end by looking back at previous technology revolutions and what we can learn from them and maybe being a bit more positive. If you think of the the 50s and 60s, uh, home automation in the form of washing machines and other devices, that did produce much bigger growth, didn't it? Much bigger advances in productivity. And I'm sure people then also saw the downsides of, of that technology. Diane, do you want to start us on that? Well, as the washing machine expert in our household, perhaps I will. (laughs) Um, I mean, obviously, that was fantastic. There's a really nice video by the late Hans Rosling about the transformative effect of washing machines on his mother's life and his life. And it was a liberating technology. So the question is, why do today's technologies, why are we so uncertain about them compared to the 1950s and 60s? Period of great automation in manufacturing and business as as, as well as in the household. And I think the answer is because we've not yet put in place all the social organisation and the legislation and the regulation that we need to make sure that the technologies are working for everybody. So I think the optimistic viewpoint is that these debates are happening. You know, economists are taking part in the regulatory discussions, but lots of people are grappling with what we think are the downsides of the tech. And in time, we will learn how to make them work for us. Jean, what's your take on the the 50s and 60s and what we can learn from them? Well, I mean, I don't think there was much danger with introducing washing machines (laughs) (laughs) compared to what's going on right now. So I'm an optimist nonetheless. It doesn't look like it. But it is a case that uh, first we have to learn how to use that properly. Take, for example, digital addiction. We watch too much of uh, too many screens and too long. So we have to learn how to behave with those. And uh, that's something that will come over time. Then we we really have to make sure that uh, the government doesn't step in and use use this technology. And that's that's difficult because you need a state of flow for that. But uh, it's very important. In terms of what Jacques said about the private sector, one of the big things, which is not new but is going on, is that those uh, big tech firms are also media. 
firms. Uh, that has always been the case that business people have purchased newspapers, for example, but that's going on now. I mean, if you think about Google and Facebook, they are media companies as well, which means that they have a lot of political control through that because they can basically determine the fate of a politician through the media feed to the news feed. So that's that's very, very important. And then there is a question how to protect the data, and that's, I think, Jacques talked about it uh, from government. And that's not easy because if you store the data, the gun, once you're an illiberal government, which happens quite a lot nowadays, comes into power, it can seize the data of those private firms. And, and then we have to find a way of this uh, not happening. Like any technological revolution, there's a lot of good stuff coming in. So we just have to find a way of, of fighting the bad stuff. And I will add inequality. It has increased inequality as well. That also has to be dealt with and antitrust, which we have discussed. So lots of challenges, but um, a positive view nonetheless. Jacques, do you see lessons to be learned from the post-war consumer electronics revolution? Jean says it was uh, there was no, nothing negative about it. Certainly in the, in the form of television, there are all sorts of panics about um, the impact of television on young people and so on. So you know, if we think about just the washing machine, that's the easy case. There were also some technologies which are which were very disruptive and people were very unhappy with. I think overall, the digital revolution has been extremely good for humanity. The improvement in communications has been something which is absolutely uh, uh, fantastic. Of course, you know, there are problems. We need to try to solve them, try to make sure that they don't dominate. But I think this kind of view that, oh, we've got a technology which could be fantastic, but right now is creating mostly problems, I think is totally wrong. I mean, I, I just don't see it this way. But maybe that's because I'm a systematic optimist. <laughs> well, that's a good note to end on, a bit of systematic optimism. And that's all we've got time for on this episode. Thanks to our expert panel, Jean Tirol and Jacques Cremer from the Toulouse School of Economics and Diane Coyle from the Bennett Institute. Just in case you hadn't uh, quite noticed, she does happen to have been married to me for more than 30 years, poor woman. Uh, let us know what you think about this first episode in season two of our Crossing Channels podcast series. You can contact us via Twitter. The Bennett Institute is at Bennett Inst. The Institute for Advanced Study is IAS Toulouse. And I am Ruskin147. If you enjoyed this program, then do listen to our other Crossing Channels episodes, notably our recent edition on what political leaders can learn from history. And please join us next month for the next edition, where we'll be looking at the future of work and well-being. <laughs>